Hey, yo, Kina, what are we doing here? What? <laughs> what are we doing here? Oh, we're divesting from whiteness. So, welcome to Divesting from Whiteness. I am so excited that you are listening to season one. It's the premiere season. And there are so many of my favorite people on this particular season. And I know that people are getting probably so sick of me saying the same thing about how everybody is special who's joining me, but that's because everybody is special. And today for the fourth episode, we have my wonderful friend, Pixie Lighthorse. And there are no words to contain the fire and the magic and the wisdom that Pixie holds. So I won't even pretend. Pixie and I are talking about the dangers of white progressivism and what does it mean to name oneself as a progressive individual. But we also make space to talk about what can be possible when someone is engaged in progressive movements. And so we talk about what does it mean to have embodied knowledge. And a part of this conversation really reflects on the fact that to embody progressive strategies and techniques and frameworks, we have to be willing to do the necessary shadow work. We have to learn how to honor grief in our lives and what it can teach us. And we have to be able to lean, like to lean in to ancestral knowledge. We have to be able to learn from people who are embodying the experiences that can teach us and help us see differently and know differently. And so for this episode, I just feel so, grateful to have been able to share space with Pixie. I think if you listen to this episode in its entirety and will listen, I think it's powerful, but I also see the value in giving yourselves like increments of this and chewing on it and reflecting on it and coming back to it. It's that it's just that amazing. And so I am looking forward to all of your reviews and your feedback about this episode and let's get into it. See you on the other side of the episode. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your, your attitude. Once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. As long as you got a sit-down philosophy, you'll have a sit-down thought pattern. And as long as you think that old sit-down thought be uh, in some kind of sit-down action. They'll have you sitting in everywhere. Break the chain, break the chain, break the chains. I'll be trying to find a way to break the chains. Say it. be strange, it be strange, it be strange. I'll be trying to find a way to make the change. Break the chain, break the chain, break the chains. I'll be trying to find a way to break the chains. Say it. am recording today with my friend Pixie and I am beyond giddy and I'm also asking myself like how and what did I do in the world or in a previous life to deserve to have this conversation so hey Pixie hey Kina 
what did we do to deserve each other as conversationalists? Um, okay, funny, cute story. So I may take, like, I made you buy your book. I mean, I feel like that is the, like where our friendship started. Like, I was like, I mean, is that how that, <laughs> I tell people, I boss people around on the internet all the time. That's apparently, if I were on a dating reality show, they were like, what are your skills? Talks about enslavement, bosses people around on the internet, you know? <laughs> yep. I, I love it. I fell into the anti-Blackness reader, probably some kind of rabbit hole and you had a call out to read um Anna Julia Cooper's Anna Julia Cooper's Voices from the South exactly and I met a and the call was to purchase the book for a black individual on the thread which I immediately was just jumped right in and I was like I'll do it and so someone jumped in and said I'd love to receive this from you and so we started having conducting zoom meetings and um communicating about the book and that was my introduction to you. And it would probably be another month or two after that, before I would get in deeper with you. And we would start having some of our famous conversations and forging a friendship and, and learning how to witness for each other. Yes. But that is not my origin story to Pixie. So (laughs) that's Pixie's origin story to me. Um, I, uh, another person that I'm just making a list of all the people we got to shout out in the notes, but Dr. Christina Cleveland, who has a book coming out this spring, which I think that might be the spring by this book for black people book. Right. Uh, but I am not prepared for what people are going to do, uh, with that book. Christina Cleveland, like is she's tearing some shit up in the best way. She is um, pushing it. And I love yeah, she it. Is. People are not ready for that black guy. Like they are not black mother. <laughs> people are like, whoa, whoa. Like the cognitive dissonance, right? God is so, a black woman is going to really open some minds. Oh yeah, it is. And I mean, it's going to be like all hands on deck. Pray for Christina's safety. Um, but uh, so I was at a conference and the wonderful Dr. Christina Cleveland was there. And every day of that conference, she opened and closed with your words. And I was mm. like, who is this person? I must, <laughs> I need to know more. And so uh, I, I started reading uh, your, your work and then I started following you. And then whenever you were like, hey, I'm gonna buy this book. I was like, Pixie, it's Pixie. <laughs> I, I don't even remember that. I don't know if I've ever heard this particular version of the origin story. Yeah. I well, know the connect is, through Dr. Christina Cleveland, but. So oh. that just means I'm cool, Pixie. And I was able to like, keep my cool, you know, <laughs> and you didn't know I was like fangirling, like it's Pixie. <laughs> no, I didn't. And so oh uh, I love the fact that the origin story of our friendship is words. It's the powerful words of our ancestors. Um, if you've not read uh, Anna Julia Cooper, she was beyond her time. Way um, ahead. The world was not ready for her as a theo. Nope. The, the, I mean, just all these things, like as a cultural studies crit- uh, academic, as a theologian, I mean, all of the things that she was. So feel free to go to my bookshop and buy the book. <laughs> yep. Post haste. It's a little book. It doesn't take, doesn't take a lot to get through it, but it is very, oh, no, very potent. It has taken a lot for me to get through it though. Like it has like, it's deep. 
it's not okay so let me just say this it's not a lot of pages per se yes. but the depth though the depth of it right and again you're you're reading you're like how was she able to come up with this and um yeah, I mean, and this is how the ancestors are moving through us now. They knew these things, they said these things, they wrote these things, and we're looking back and realizing that they knew we were going to be here in this position. They knew we were going to need that medicine. Yeah, and so that's why it's important for all of us when we're doing that ancestral honoring. You know, I tell people all the time, I'm not saying anything Harriet Tubman wasn't saying. Hmm. Uh, I don't ever want. I may be saying it a little differently, right? But it is a really important time in our lives to really honor that. Okay. So let me put back on my smart podcaster voice. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I always start episodes while, by telling the listeners how I have an orientation to the person we're talking to. Uh, some of that comes across as like very resume-like because you have a pretty outstanding profile kid you not or like the young people say no cap all right (laughs) no cap but also like what it personally means to have your wisdom and sageness in my life all right so first of all I want everybody to know that Pixie Light Horse is a prolific writer speaker healer teacher educator uh I would think I am you're a farmer uh, you're a parent, you're a poet. Well, I mean, am I missing? She's, Pixie is a gardener. <laughs> a lot of irons in the fire over here. <laughs> it all, go, it all goes little, together though, right? You know, I mean, it's like, what are you not? And then you have some pictures on your website and like, are you a, like, are you a model? <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> uh, but Pixie has written over 50, uh, no, sorry, you've taught over 50 uh, workshops um, and really engaged people in like I call transcendent work. Um, but my orientation to you uh, really comes from the honoring series that you wrote, right? I wanted to name you as an enrolled member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. And I'd love for you to tell the audience what your chosen last name means and why it has significance. And then I'm going to ask you our checking question. Well, my last chosen name, my writer name, my pen name, the name that most people know me by is Light Horse, which is the, um, the five nations, the five quote, civilized tribes from the Southern United States all had Light Horse or Light Horsemen as their tribal police. And there was an interesting, it's got light side and shadow side, as does the five civilized tribes, which on the note of accountability, the five civilized tribes were also the five slaveholding nations. And that is something to, those are waters that I swim in with accountability and try to hold my nation accountable to that is probably topic for another time. But the light horse um, had a sort of honor system of, of accountability. And so without even knowing where my life was going to be going years down the road, um, I had given that as a middle name to my child because my, one of my family members was a light horseman. 
Um, so that was almost 16 years ago. And then when I got divorced about eight years ago, I just decided that I was going to write in this way as well. I was going to connect myself to my son and my lineage through this, this, um, name. So that is the origin of light horse. And I could, I could really take up a whole bunch of time trying to explain all the many ways in which it has, you know, a name has its way with us. And so (laughs) I have, it has had its way with me and it is still having its way with me. And, um, and I'm trying to live up to what it's asking of me. Thanks for sharing Pixie. I was going to say, I just realized I didn't uh, name my favorite. Well, if I had to, okay, I'm not going to say my favorite book by you, but I will say that the book by you go mining the shadows is the one that is probably the most damaged. That is the one that is probably the most like you can tell when you look at my bookshelf like you could really tell what books get the most traction and that is the one that has the most post-it notes and earmarks and guffle book you know and so anyway um if you have never read pixie i suggest all of it's good stuff but again go mining the shadows is uh where my heart has really probably leaned in the most so anyway such an honor to know that Kina and um yeah such a blessing to have I I feel like I can't have a conversation with thousands of people but books are a way to as you said kind of have that starter conversation and so I hope that the books read it's always my hope that people can interact with them in the way that you do it's it's a starter conversation and it's to make difficult subjects kind of a little more digestible and and easy and kick us off into our next level of growth in fact, I thought about quoting, but then I felt like that might have been too top heavy. <laughs> like I was like, I can't fangirl with Pixie on the on the call. So, okay, so check in question, Pixie. So here at DWF, we realize that context means everything. So today, I kind of share my introduction of you as all those things, but I would love to hear how you would describe yourself today by asking you the question, what is shaping your life the most right now? Um, What's shaping my life the most right now is relationships. And it's not that different from the last 20, 25 years of my life, but the level of intimacy, which I would say intimate relationships and intimacy within relationships and the emotionality of those relationships and how I'm tolerating that and navigating it with my own system and, um, and growing myself through that is what is, I would say that's, what's shaping me. And I'm, I'm learning to, um, relationality with earth, with animals. That's always been a lens through which I have understood the world and my own body and being and others. And it's where I've found a lot of empathy, a lot of grace, a lot of ability to tolerate um, the things that jar my nervous system and things like that. So I I have this very kind of particular way of relating through the world for me, I guess. Um, And so what's, what's really shaping me right now is how are we relating to each other? How are we conversing with each other? How are we tolerating each other? What are we ready for? I'm looking out into the sea of people and seeing that there's there seems to be a lot of lack of wanting to relate and fear of relating. And so that just spurs me on 
more, you know, like that just makes me want to relate and be intimate with other beings and humans right now more than ever. I think that's amazing. Uh, we're going to get to what's shaping me the most later in the episode, but I want us to get right into it. So uh, listeners, I want you all to know that Pixie is someone that I very much trust. I feel like even when we're being funny together or silly or whatever, there's so much wisdom that Pixie shares. And so really we're gonna just kind of like just have a very open conversation. But Pixie, I do really want to talk about something that I've identified in the last two years in my own journey to divest from whiteness to be one of the greatest detractors from that. Um, I would even name it as like a violent kind of stressor for me. And it is the dangers. And I like insert slot, like uh, insert, uh, oh gosh, what's the, oh, now I can't think of the slant mark. Like a backslash? <laughs> backslash, yeah, that one. <laughs> but the dangers of, the danger of white backslash progressivism. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, because I actually see that that enterprise, that movement, however we're gonna like umbrella the term, is actually being counterproductive for those of us who are imagining a new world, for those of us who aren't just necessarily married to reform, but married to abolition. You know what I'm saying? And so that's what I wanted to talk to you about because I feel like in all the labor we do across all of the different spaces, we have shared conversation around observing that, seeing that out in the open, out in the wild. And I feel like we have to name that as dangerous. So that's what we're talking about today. Yay. And so, <laughs> you know, yeah, we're going to get into it. And I also want to put the precursor out that when I'm talking about dangerous progressivism, right, I know a lot of people are going to probably interpret this as Democrat or liberal. I'm not necessarily naming a political affiliation. Okay, so, you know, I want to make that, I want to really make that kind of note here. Would you so, say, would you say, Tina, that it's I kind graduate, of, the, would you say that it's kind of like the illusion of progressivism? That's one way to describe it, right? There are two things I want to mark. So when I finished grad school, I moved to Austin, Texas. And Austin is the city I was actually born. A lot of people don't know that, but I am a Texan by birth, I guess. <laughs> I didn't stay there long. And uh, before I turned one, we moved to New York, okay? But I'm a Texan by birth. And so when I finished grad school, I was like, I'm gonna go back to the place where I belong. <laughs> Oh, Austin, Texas, keep Austin weird. And Austin is a lovely place. It is. So I, I want to make sure, you know, I don't get any hate mail. But when I got there, there were lots of things about that Austin uh, stay that actually really marked my adulthood. It was the first time that I ever got stopped and frisked mm. from um, a, a police agent. Uh, I was walking to the library. And I mean, no one looks more innocent than someone walking to the library. <laughs> Seriously. And uh, 
I heard the police sirens and I kept walking because like, oh my God, I'm, I'm not a criminal, you know? And anyway, long story short, I looked like whoever the person was that they were looking for and they stopped me. I'm, I never ended up in the cop car, right? By the grace of the creator, but I will never forget it. They stopped me, ID'd me, called, all these kind of things. That's not yes. here there. That has nothing to do with a story. Um, but I got there, super excited, because again, the city is known to be a liberal, progressive hotbed. And mm -hmm. so I was like, yes, it's these like are Portland. my people. It's like Portland, right? I was like, these are my people. And I hadn't been there long. And I, and I still say to this day, and I can't speak for every person who lives in the city, obviously, but I got that feeling so strongly that more concern related to like how, like the price of organic avocados hmm. than what was going on with red zoning mm -hmm. and school districting, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that really stayed with me. Like, how is it possible that in this city where all these people you know, have this leftist lean mm -hmm. at this, at this and, I, and I'll give you the count, the juxtaposition. People have fought tirelessly to uh, ban plastic bags from grocery stores. So mm -hmm. while I lived there, that ban had, uh, was enforced, that mandate had been enforced. So you couldn't get plastic bags from large grocery stores. Yes, but you could stop and frisk black female library goers. That was cool. And, and that was the same time where they made it where the, the housing insecure, the homeless population could no longer, um, like there are different public municipality spaces they could no longer be in for free. Yeah. Like, so they had mandated they couldn't stay at the bus stop or bus stations or libraries. And so this is a city that both of those in initiatives passed at the same time. Yeah, very sanitized, <laughs> which is, you know, right there in the, uh, among the roots of anti-Blackness. Yeah. <sighs> and so that left a, a lasting kind of taste in my mouth, Pixie, that just because someone votes for Obama twice. Jeez. Yeah. It's the, it's the comfort of gentrification. <laughs> yeah. My fluffy, comfortable world. Come on. Right. Yeah, when are so folks going to realize that that is not that is that that does not mean anything? It just keeps perpetuating what is trying to be solved by so many in leadership and just on and the ground. The second thing I'm going to kind of for real on the ground, and the second thing I'm going to name just give some like historical scope here as well is second wave feminism. We're talking '68, growing out of that the Mississippi. America pageant where no bras were burned. I always try to uplift that myth like that's not what happened. <laughs> but um, and there's consciousness raising circles, right? And so women of all like BIPOC women, white women, all these different people are getting together and they're sharing stories about their common experience of the patriarchy and where things are falling apart. And I always named that as a period that had a lot of there's a lot of richness there, but one of the manifestations of that was white guilt. And mm. 
I will say this over a hundred times in my lifetime, that white guilt is not sustainable and it actually doesn't build anything, right? And I feel like I saw that same energy last year. A lot of white people in 2020 felt guilty, Mm -hmm. right? Felt the low frequency of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But here we are in 2021 and I asked the same question. What did that guilt build? My response to that is not very much. So anyway, that's my orientation. I think that's like, if I had to sum up what that, that progressivism, dangerous progressivism, it looks like not paying attention to redlining. It looks like being more concerned about, you know, a Whole Foods being in your neighborhood. Right. It looks like making space to listen to a black and brown trauma, feeling bad about it, and that's it. So anyway, that's my orientation, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I mean, that's a that's a real... Um uh intersection like a I'm, I'm visualizing it as like you know this is the I'm standing at the corner of you know white progressivism and total inactivity and uh, you know of what's af- actually happening right now and I and we've talked many times about the missed opportunity the disappointment the letdown of what didn't get to happen um, after the murder of George Floyd and Freedom Summer and, you know, many different DEI jobs being created and things like that. And, and the white, the um, real swelling of white guilt that caused many black owned, for example, social media accounts to, you know, really grow, causing a tremendous amount of pressures on account holders. and so you know, we're, what we're seeing here at this, where you, you know, kind of have found yourself from my vantage point is that this is a, this is a place of where we could have launched and didn't, you know, it's sagged back into comfort, back into electing a democratic um, president that many folks felt so jazzed about, you know, so excited about, you know, overturning, moving Trump aside, which nothing has really left from that. And we're seeing today that 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 is not, you know, once again, we played the lesser of two evils game and and this toxic um, politicism is still clouding the minds of white folks who cannot tolerate and find a way to launch into action out of their guilt. I have to hold myself accountable for this too, you know, like, Folks who are raising kids, doing the thing, you know, going along in their life in the way that they have become accustomed, double down with the pandemic, double that down with, you know, with the, the visible murders of Black folks in the streets. And I think that nervous systems get overwhelmed, and I'm not justifying inaction, but I think that nervous systems get overwhelmed. I think that the the information that is coming through about what we can be doing exists in the head instead of in the body. And so the embodied action on a daily basis that we can be taking, the conversations that we can be having, the um the at our very most local levels of whether it's government or feeding unhoused populations or different things like that simply aren't happening at the level that we need to see them to create this world. You and I were talking a couple of days ago about um, how Anasa Troutman um, has said, and it really stuck with me when I heard her say this in March, that, um, so they said that 
this is something, this is a world that we've, that's never been created before. Of, of course, it's not going to just materialize. We have to actually do a lot of things with each other to create that world. So first of all, we have to have a tolerance for our shortcomings and still be able to show up to conversation, right? And that's not able to happen when you know, kids can't go to school and things like that. So it seems like the, this, a meteor hit last year, and yet there's still full and valid reason to have had expectations that something else would have happened besides where we're at right now. Um, meteor hit. And I think that the focus has been so much on mitigating internalized sort of unresolved trauma in in white bodies or white passing bodies that the launch pad for what could have happened last year just sort of went, you know, wilted like a, like a wilting flower. And so that comes with a lot of disappointment. It comes with, I don't know about for you, I, I can probably project, but it comes with a lot of um, um, stagnancy and disappointment. And why, why hasn't more happened? And why are people still living under this very comfortable illusion that change is happening without them having to do anything for it, without them having to address certain points um, within the, the greater community that need attention desperately and, and, that, and that ears were made aware of last year, like, how is it so easy to then go back to a, a practice of neglect? I want to go back. I mean, to there's so many things you said, but I want to go back to a couple <laughs> specific things. You say, why do people think that change can occur without having to do anything for it? That's powerful. And I want us to go back there. Why do you think people feel like change can manifest without having to do anything for it. I mean, in the most simple, if we were sitting across the table from each other, which we often do on the, on the phone, I think the most simple conversation starter around that might be that it's, it's always been somebody else's problem. You know, let the, let the government take care of that. Let the ACLU take care of that. You know, let, I'll make my $20 domain donation per month. And that's, that's not something that I feel like I have any power over. And I understand you, you mentioned something earlier about, about how frustrating it is to listen to white progressivism when more truth sometimes comes out of, let's say, for example, the far right, the, the power that has been given to governing agencies is, you know, bypassing plain and simple. And so it's been, I think, um, hallmark of white progressivism to let somebody else handle that. You know, we vote, we vote the right people in and uh, they should be taking care of that problem. And I'm gonna go back to my latte. My pumpkin spice latte at that. <laughs> <laughs> I know I sound like a hater. That's a little bit of shade right there. You know, I wanna, there's a couple things that hearing you just made me think about one being, and I talk a lot about this in my work, the transactional versus the relational. And so to your point, I voted for Obama twice. I voted for Biden. We got never Trump out of there. Mm -hmm. And I did the thing. And then I followed 10 black women on Instagram. I did the thing. And then I listened to that season of a podcast. I did the thing. And I bought the book, Why Fragility? 
by Robin D'Angelo, you know, a white woman who knows all the things about racism. That was sarcasm, just in case the listeners couldn't pick up on that, right? <laughs> but I did the thing. I did the thing. And that is a transaction. And Pixie, it's been my experience, and I still see this all the time, that people think that this new world that we are imagining and trying to manifest happens transactionally. But that's yeah. not accurate, is it, Pixie? I mean, I really couldn't have said it better myself. I think that that's exactly right. It takes the emotional intimacy out of it. It takes accountability out of the picture. Um, it is transactional. And that is, I think, how we run most of our relationships and community. We don't live in communities that are that are building um, relationships with people who have differences from one another. You know, I don't particularly want to interface with folks who I don't agree with. So I have to check that in myself. Um, <clears throat> And I think that transactional is, you know, it's sort of that like one and done kind of thing. Like I listened to the podcast. I read the book. I, I, I empathized and understood. I think I'm grokking that information, but it's not in the body. It's not being, it's not an embodied experience to read, a, to read a book. That's just information. That's the data that we have to work with right now. After D'Angelo, you know, got sort of swept out, thankfully, you know, a lot more information came in from black bodies, from indigenous bodies. And so we, we learned through this process. These are the voices that we have to center on these subjects. Um, and, and we have to be able to make relationships around that. You know, we have to not go out and, 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 and get a black friend. You know, I did that too. And, um, and then have them advocate for us or validate our, our discomfort in inaction. Um, so I think that there's this more that we're wanting to see is a really natural, I mean, it's part of the evolution, I think. So, you know, what, what would you, what are you calling on folks to actually do beyond transactionality? So let me just say this, and I, oh, I'm trying not to get into a, a tailspin because I, I will digress us right on out of the, this conversation. And if anyone who knows me for very long knows that I can make any conversation about chattel slavery. And I don't say this lightly, but uh, it feels weird to say I studied the enslavement of Africans, but um, I don't know the best way to describe it. But I return to chattel slavery because there's a lot of learning there that we've all missed to not deal with the reality of that trauma. All right, so let me name this. But it is in that study, it's in, in, in looking at slave narratives, it's in revisiting that. One of the things, there's lots of questions that come out of that for me, but very early on, and so let me just name this. I decided, I don't have the marker pixie, but a couple years ago, I decided I was gonna teach myself about title enslavement, because I didn't learn. Whatever the hell was happening in school, I wouldn't call that learning. So I decided I was going to, to learn about what happened to my ancestors. And I started with um, Tales from the South by Harriet Jacobs. Um, I always tell people that is a really good place to start. And one of my first questions that came out of this, like the rudimentary understandings I had at the time was, were any of these relationships consensual, right? Because what, what does consent mean if your partner has been picked for you um, with the intent to just make more um Slates, right? And so there's a whole different, that's a whole different conversation, Pixie. But it brought to mind 
a lot of other thoughts about what is what roots most of the relationships we have in the West, right, in Western culture, in the Americas, here in the United States. And so much of how we understand relationships, if we're honest with each other, is indicative of hierarchy and power. And so one of the things that I tell people who are in my radical community, people who are learning from me in my Patreon community, people who are gonna be listening to the podcast is that whiteness has taken a lot from everybody. Um, it has especially taken from white people, the abilities to have relationships that aren't reinforcing power and hierarchy. That's right. What does it mean to come to know someone, <laughs> truly know someone? So I guess the question that I, I, I kind of been back to you is this, is I'm not even sure. So like I would argue that I'm not sure that during enslavement, Black people were actually able to have fully consensual relationships. And I said, I'm not sure. So no one married me to that position. It is something that I'm thinking through. But what I am pretty positive on is that white people, especially those who are fully invested in whiteness, who are completely um, maintaining white supremacy culture, those relationships, I would, I would argue, aren't actually rooted in intimacy as much as they're rooted in control, power, and surveillance, and hierarchy. And I say this all the time to white women in particular, do not mistake protection for surveillance because the state is amazing at it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So for us to start thinking relationally, we got to start with figuring out how can we be in our bodies? Mm -hmm. And most of us aren't. <laughs> Yeah, right. there's a lot of like, unintegrated trauma in, in all of our Western bodies. Right. What mm -hmm. does it mean to be in body? What, and, and this is simple as, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm chewing you in here, right? Because this is a lot of your work and your pra personal practice, embodiment, breath, because half the time, we don't even know how to get into that. It's true. You want to talk more about it? Well, I mean, I think that to be embodied and to be human is to be, is to sort of, you know, I, I think I've had to indulge the, the human animal that I am um, and to see myself as part of that greater ecosystem that must be embodied, um, must stop prioritizing thoughts over feelings, um, must tolerate discomfort. And, um, and I think that to be human, to be embodied is to be constantly navigating discomfort. And so it makes a lot of sense that Americans, I guess um, I could frame it that way, um, are going to do everything possible instinctually, unconsciously to avoid discomfort. Um, and so that is that avoidant practice is, you know, if, if, if parents are avoiding the discomfort of their children's cries of their pain, which is part of, you know, parenting um, strategies that are many, many books have been written about, you know, like, let your, let your baby cry it out, you know, knowing that when a baby cries, it's signaling a need, a need for human intimacy, a need for bonding, a need for care. Um, you know, it's reflected right in the way that we treat each other that when cries for help come from communities, come from bodies, come from groups of people that, you know, we ignore because that makes us so uncomfortable. It triggers that un our own unintegrated traumas and, um, and we can't tolerate it. And, and many people, I think the, the part of the big issue is many people are not wanting to learn how to 
increase their tolerance. And when I, when I speak of tolerance, I'm not speaking of it in the um, kind of historical sense of, of tolerance of, you know, people with differences. I mean, nervous system tolerance. Um, when we max out, when we start to kind of gl glitch in our bodies a little bit, you know, we don't have practiced tools in a sort of universal way that we think, okay, well, I'm going to press pause and whew, I'm just going to breathe through this. I'm just going to, you know, notice what, where in my body I'm sensing this discomfort, you know, how is my body sending me signals about what it needs? Um, parenting has, has obviously given me a firsthand experience in seeing this happen in, in little bodies. But I think that the willingness, which is one of my favorite qualities of humanity, the willingness to increase tolerance um, is, is undervalued. And so, you know, who's willing to have these conversations? I mean, clearly you are and um, at great cost to you and your body. Um, for the creation of this, this world that, that you're wanting to see. So when it comes to consent and consensuality, I mean, I think we go along with things if it will assuage our discomfort. So we give our power away. We, um, capitalism has taught us to make mergers and relationships so that we can be financially protected, insulated, and cared for. Um, you know, we, we have tremendous fears that keep us in our busy minds all the time. I mean, as, a, as an evolving species of, of humans, one thing that I, I hope we can kind of find some com common ground on is that it is very, very challenging um, to, to be in our bodies and to be sometimes even just to be on earth as a, as a brainy, um, animal being, you know, we, it, it serves us better at this time to not be embodied, to not tend each other, because it brings up so much that we haven't addressed, that we haven't contended with, that we don't feel strong enough to um, face. As a little bit of a tangent there. I, I hope I answered your question. I think you gave more than we needed and more than we... <laughs> more than we probably deserve <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's something else that you said that i wanted to go back to and kind of gonna make this a more cute focus for a second but you know i think people and again specifically progressive people those people who voted for obama twice and biden for what you know the once whatever um and i'm oversimplifying that you know i'm being tongue-in-cheek there but you know, I think you said something about like these people feel like, you know, like, or people, the people, I hate using the phrase these people, but for the sake of this conversation, these people might feel like, you know, I did the thing. I think there's another component here, which is people allow themselves to feel guilty. And that felt like doing something. It felt like doing something. Yeah. Because maybe for the first time ever, and I think this is maybe I, I'm no expert on wokeness, but I mean, maybe this is where this, this came from. I, I awaken. Wait, Pixie, you're not an expert on wokeness. Well, I mean, we can't publish this episode because that's, <laughs> that's exactly what it comes to. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, I have a weird relationship with wokeness, I guess, because the part of me that identifies and feels that DNA memory of whiteness for sure um, doesn't want to be leaning on terms like that. But I mean, I think that we, 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 I awakened to how bad things really are. I got to see it in the, in, in video and um, in experiencing this, I got to hear from my, you know, black um, kin that this is what it actually has been like for a long time. You don't remember any way of it being otherwise, or, you know, that level of being awakened to how it really is, right? rather than the fantasy of what we thought it was with eight years of Obama or whatever our fa healing fantasy was, it wasn't, the results were not coming. The outcomes are not better. Sometimes the outcomes are worse. And so interfacing with, with that information is, um, so, you know, from a psychological standpoint, and I'm, an, you know, an, an amateur and that this is also not my area of expertise, but just li living a life for 50 years, guilt says, I feel badly about something and I want to do something about it. And shame says, I'm just a bad person. So screw it. You know, like I'm, I'm going to bury it again because that absolutely isn't tolerable. And our, we have so much, I mean, obviously Brene Brown has built an entire body of decades of work around toxic shame, but feeling that, that feeling of like, I, I feel badly that this is happening. I want to do something about it. Like that's step one of a thousand, you know, and it's a great way in, right. As a poet, as a creative, we're always like, what's our way in? How can we catch a wave? And so last year, um, was like a way the wave came and we were going to surf that, but you know, just the desire to want things to be different doesn't make them different. And so how are we, how are we addressing on an inner level and then an outer level? What are, how are we healing what we need to heal inside so that we can have better conversations and then also move beyond that layer of talk into action, but also into feeling, which always leads us into discomfort, always leaves us. You and I have talked a little bit about you know, the murky kind of bog of the West on the medicine wheel. Once we go through that sort of tight eye of the needle, that, that, that interfacing with our shames and our realities and our feelings, our griefs that we've never even addressed, then we get to kind of birth through into, okay, now I can share this with community. Now we can move into growth. So, you know, it's, um, I think that, that just having white guilt, which I mean, I probably experience it every single day. You, if you are paying attention, you're going to feel badly about the way that things are, but it can't end there. Right? No, it can't because that's what I'm saying. That's why I try to say it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable for long-term change, radical movement, and radical intimacy. No, it's you not know, a plan of action. It's just a way in. Yeah. I always I, I used to use this with my my college students. Um I would say when I was 12, I washed my mom's dish, I washed the dishes at home because I was scared of my mom. You know what I'm saying? Like I was scared of the consequence <laughs> of not doing the thing that was requested. Mm -hmm. Here I am in my 40s 
and I go to my mom's house, if there are dishes in her sink, guess what, Pixie? I wash them. Mm -hmm. That has nothing to do with me being afraid. Right. Yeah. And you know that it would please her and it's collaborative and it's an act of exactly. care. Exactly. And, you know, this is one less thing that my mom has to worry about when she comes home. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I wash my mom's dishes now because I love her. Mm -hmm. That has nothing to do with fear. I mean, now let me say this. I am, you know, my mom has five kids, eight grandkids. She still has the mama look. So there are moments where she is still scary as hell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, dang, I didn't think that still worked on me, but okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as a parent, we're trying to help help kids wire in how to be considerate, you know? So, so your mom did an effective job of helping you pay attention and noticing the details and also noticing what being collaborative and considerate actually looks like in action. And, you know, I can't say how much that's happening elsewhere. We have a lot of different things happening in, in the intimate family lives of, of people, but, you know, this is, this is one of those little moments where we can say, well, I, I transmuted that fear and, and now it's simply an act of noticing and care. You know, that's his basic maturity um, yeah. and adulting. And it's love too. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's love and honor. Oh yeah. And so what does it mean? And I, and I talk about this a lot too. People have to learn how to stop consuming by pot boats and start mm -hmm. honoring them. Those yeah. are not the same. Getting on TikTok and watching 10 Black creators do the latest dance or whatever, that's not necessarily honoring. No. You know? How that's is that consumption. honoring? Exactly. That's consuming. And mm -hmm. uh, here in these United States, that's what's been happening since we arrived on the shore. Mm -hmm. It's not the same thing. And unfortunately, for those people who would identify as progressive, there's that is a sticking line, but a lot of that is consumption too, whether they want to recognize it or not. Being able to say, when I post my whatever, whatever picture and look at all my black and brown friends or looking at all my queer friends, whatever it is, using people as markers to highlight your progressivism, that's not honor. You know, uh, we were honor. talking it's not honor. And we were talking about this and I don't, I mean, the only reason why I keep bringing this up because I think there's a lot to learn here. So I know people are probably like, why are you always talking about Jessica? But like, you know, we found out a few weeks ago about the So You Want to Talk About platform. Mm -hmm. um, Ijeoma came out and was very brave and vulnerable and saying like, yes, I've had a problem with it since day one. I didn't want to talk about this experience because it's been traumatic this particular person stole from me. Mm -hmm. And I just want to name like Jessica, the person who is the owner of that platform um, came out and, you know, the page was rooted in like specifically, like a, I think it started at like with her supporting Bernie's campaign. I don't mm -hmm. know all the particulars, but definitely identify. I think the page literally says progressive, right? So a page that has, almost 3 million followers was built on a precipice of stealing a black woman's work. Mm -hmm. And words and this, directly. And directly, right? And then when appeals are made to say, this is not a, no Bruno, this is no good. 
even to the extent that this page is now called So Informed, that feels like a slap in the face. Mm-hmm. I'm not Ijeoma, I don't know Ijeoma, but it still feels really violent as a Black woman who's witnessing from the mm-hmm. sidelines. Yeah. And this is a person who says they're progressive. And I've met a lot of Jessica's. And so this is not one particular person, Pixie. There is a pathology specific mm-hmm. to white women, I would think, of, you know, we can talk about what the body knows, right? There's, you know, I talk a lot about like being trauma-informed, recognizing what the body knows. And this is ugly. Even me saying it feels like I'm cussing. But I think it's important <laughs> for me to, to get more comfortable even getting this out my tongue. Yeah. If yeah. my body knows the trauma of enslavement mm-hmm. and it of my ancestors, right? Then white bodies know the trauma with overseeing it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The trauma and of consuming and, and stealing and exploiting and extracting. That part. That part. Go ahead. I'm letting you have the floor. All those things you just said. <laughs> Get into it, friend. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, we're really dealing with, I love that you named it as a pathology because I think that that's what we're, what, what is not being seen. Rowan White, who is a Haudenosaunee teacher, farmer, leader, expert speaks, um, especially from her direct learnings from, from Resma uh, Menachem about our blood memory and what we do because of what our DNA or our conditioning back generations and generations knows, right? So, so when, as you said, when white bodies or white feminist quote, progressive bodies know that they are experiencing the trauma of overseeing the traumatization of black bodies or indigenous bodies, then then and not acknowledging it then there that is a perpetuation i mean i i'm 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 stretching myself just a little bit in an area that i don't necessarily feel authoritative in just to make the point that which has been talked about by many it's not my original idea but like having to shut down so much that you don't experience the embodied trauma of whiteness on your own white body or, or white passingness is very similar. And this is, this is where I think a common ground has been found certainly between you and I, and between many people who are um, really trying to get some lift under the wings of the movement is to say the whiteness hurts all of us. It is actively harming all of us. Um, and so that's, that's unsettling. And I think that it's a message that keeps not getting across. I mean, it's the same, it's the same conversation in feminism, you know, patriarchy is harming you penis beings or male beings or, uh, male identified like, <laughs> did you just- <laughs> oh yes, I did. <laughs> I've never heard that a day in my life. Penis being <laughs> O-M-G. <laughs> gets bandied about a lot here. Um, It's, you know, to not see what our, to not understand that all of us have internalized misogyny, all of us have internalized anti-Blackness. And those of us who are not having a Black experience um, are need to really tend that 
territory inside of ourselves, tend that wound of shutdown, um, understand what it must have taken to see the harm of chattel slavery, to see the harm of genocide and, and realize something must have happened to me that I am allowing this, that I am tolerating this, that I am in a sense through my inaction, my passive voice, um, you know, I am per, um, promoting it. Oh, take a deep, cause that is deep, right? It's a, it's an unsettling. And again, it's this reminder of how far we've come, but also how far we have to go within ourselves as well on these journeys. Mm -hmm. The last thing that I wanted to kind of touch on, it's like a twofer kind of sort of. I felt like in this episode, I really wanted to name the idea of racial gaslighting. Mm. Because I have experienced it, I would imagine so many people have. And it's the psychological manipulation and the minefields that are often used to minimize the racial and ethnic discrimination that uh, BIPOC folks experience every day. Mm -hmm. I can't be racist because, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. My partner is a black man. I can't be, you know, saying, and, and gaslighting happens in a variety of ways. I'm just being specific here to those who have racial or ethnic identities um, that would be considered from under supported groups, you know. So my own personal experience, Sixty, is the racial gaslighting I've experienced the most have happened by way of liberal white people. I yeah. kid you not. And I'm I not live surprised. on this side of the Mississippi. I kid you not. It has not been from card carrying, you know, Uncle Buck has mm -hmm. a KKK uh, robe in his closet, folks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I come from the academy. And that place, the ivory tower is what we call it. That's the metaphor we use. It's filled with folks who are much more comfortable dealing with black and brown bodies on the pages mm -hmm. of their research than in real life. That's right. Yeah. And I know in your work, Pixie does a lot of work. I didn't even talk about your work with, well, I didn't name you as a farmer, but I didn't talk about the work you do with food insecurity and I'm going to tag some of the organizations you support in this episode. But I feel like even though it's not the same, right, academy versus like farmers and um, food sourcers and all that stuff, but surely there's some similar veins there. Uh, do you see that, like, you know what I'm saying? Like people who are talking about populations that need support, but don't know how to internalize the work for sustainable change. Yeah, I mean, working with land, um, working with food, um, working with you know intertribal agriculture council, and looking at food security, there are a lot of folks who are white folks in particular, and I'll just keep it to my region, who are um, you know doing quote the noble work of farming, and they are patting themselves on the back and feeling really good about growing food. And, and I think that every region needs to have a way of, of creating food and looking into indigenous cultures um, in, the, in their region to understand 
what food was like and 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 to call there you know at the at the academic level it's called like food insecurity or um food deserts and things like this and they're and they're very methodically and scientifically measuring the amount of miles from a store to communities that typically are um you know not um experiencing um nutritional health and wellness and some might say underserved i don't know how i feel about that term but um you know it's being mapped how food is but the the fact is that the situation we're in right now is food apartheid and um so working with land and and tending to land that can grow food and has grown food and 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 is evolving at this time is such a very different conversation than growing food and taking it to the farmer's market. And, you know, this is where we see that sort of white liberal progressivism coming out again, like, and, and the wound of not being enough, isn't it enough that I'm growing healthy food for my community and that I donate the excess to the reservation or to um, the houseless population? Isn't it enough that I am doing this, that, or the other? And so there's a, you know, a great insecurity an emotional insecurity among white progressives that I notice that, you know, just wants to do good work and feel good at the end of the day, because feeling bad uh, really disrupts the relationship to life itself, right? It, it brings on low grade depression and um and hopelessness and things like that and so i guess i could just say about the work that i do with food is that number one food should be free and i'm and i'm really that is not something that i woke up one morning and was like food should be free this is from uh working with amber tam this is from um listening to many people who are not practicing exploitation and extraction. This is looking back to, to nutritional programs begun by the Panthers. Um, I think that looking at our on the ground situation for what it really is, not what we want it to be, not what makes it us feel good um, and, and not accepting that because certain strides are being made that that is where the work ends i mean each of us has one lifetime and we can set our gps on doing one thing really really well um, which is kind of like that um um you know like being extraordinary or being exceptional or being excellent sonia renee taylor talks a lot about why why white progressivism is so set on being exceptional being unexceptional growing food sharing food talking with people looking into the eyes of unhoused people um, supporting those who are doing good work in the local community um, taking it a step beyond i did this great thing i grew this um you know i grew this corn in my field i turned my lawn into um a place that grows food. What's the next step I can take? I could share it with my neighbors. What's the next step I could take? I can canvas my neighborhood and see if there's if there are any other people who want to grow food instead of um, grass. Um, you know, what's the next step we can take? Maybe we can create um, a program that um, invites people into our yards to look them in the eye as we're growing food together. 
Um, you know, what is going to increase the level of intimacy with fellow humans? So, you know, I think that for me, emotional intimacy is, is a real GPS setting for me. I want to go deep with people. And I understand that many people do not want to go deep and are not going to be that kind of being. Um, and that's going to have to be okay. It doesn't have to be 90% of us who get on in the boat and row for others um, and have this wonderful experience of making some kind of difference. Um, but, and it doesn't even have to be 50% of us. But if <laughs> I always, tell friends, like if just 10% of us can be intimate with each other and allow a new way of being to grow out of that, then it will, it will ripple out. Um, you and I personally have had that, ha have had this experience where we've had to tolerate, um, each other's discomfort and, um, you know, you've had to tolerate my shortcomings or my lack of being able to see or understand things. And we just keep hanging in there. We just keep staying in the conversation, you know, not hanging up that, that goal because it just seems like too much. We're overwhelmed, right? So full circle back into the body. What happens when I get into overwhelm? How do I treat myself? How do I talk to myself? What resources do I have? What access do I have? to actually be with myself the way that I am, right? As within, so without. The experience we're seeing out in the world is the exact experience we're having inside of our bodies in this moment. It's a direct so, re result. That is so good. I don't even, I'm gonna ask the question, but it's unnecessary because you've answered it, which is, you know, we talked about the dangers of progressivism, but what would it mean to, to honestly live in a world where we, pro we co communally progress? right? I don't need more progressivism. I need community progress. Those are different things. And so I feel like you answered that question inadvertently. People are going to have to get what I would call both emotional dexterity and emotional fluency, mm -hmm. right? So emotional dexterity is that resilience, the girth. It's the muscle part of it. It's like, yeah, I can handle hard emotion. <laughs> I mean, let something come out of this really big affirmation uh, movement. <laughs> you know, like I can do this. I got this. Yes, yes, and we and we really can do. We can really get this if we can do it together. If we can tolerate each other's difficulties and differences and and discomforts. Yeah, and then the second thing is emotional fluency, and it's similar to like when we talk about being fluent in multiple languages learning to understand how emotional experiences can show up in people verbally and non-verbally, learning how to learn, I need to learn how to switch my dial, right? You know what I'm saying? So as a, I'm, I don't have kids, but I'm the aunt of eight kids. And so I learn a lot from my nieces and nephews when I learn how to be sensitive to that person's particular needs, because they don't all feel the same. They don't all do the same. Yeah, they're all tiny humans. They're littles, of course. Mm -hmm. But how my niece Kalani experiences disappointment can be very different than my nephew Malachi. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. So learning how to, to change the dial, okay, turn it down, turn it up, maximize this frequency, we have to increase our range, 
Mm-hmm. But that takes time. That takes intentionality. And to your point, it takes intimacy. I have to believe people deserve that. Mm-hmm. But it's hard if I don't even believe I deserve that. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. for me, the work that I'm constantly doing and whatever the next iteration of Kina is, who knows? I don't know. But right now, this way for me is learning how to demand safety mm-hmm. and demand uh, consent and boundaries. Yeah. Because I am learning that the things that I feel I deserve, I I understand other people deserve too. So there's a point where we have to be honest within ourselves about what do I really believe to be true for myself that extends to other people? Mm-hmm. And if you believe that you have to earn food or right. earn housing, then of course you think that everybody has to earn that shit too. Yep. Yep. Yeah. This episode is about the danger of white progressivism. And I think it's important that we have this conversation, not once, not twice, but several times, which is why you and I have had this conversation several times. And so people are going to get the benefit of what I like to think of several moon cycles of us thinking and reflecting Um, collectively and individually about this topic. And so I know we've talked about the dangers of where progressivism and even like white progressivism has gone, but I think we need to also make some space to talk about the places that there can be richness and forward thinking. Um, And that's not attached to any particular political party. Would you agree? I would agree. Yeah. And I think that white progressivism is, you know, rests too much. Yeah. And when I think about what does it mean to be both white and or progressive for me, and let me just name this, my social location, because I'm not a white person. So like, obviously I don't have that, um, like that particular knowing, but for me as an outsider, as someone who's deeply impacted by the moves of white progressives, I would say that part of what a positive and liberating white progressive action is, it's, it's embodiment. It's about learning how to embody the things that we understand as collective knowledge. And so that embodiment for me really has like several parts. The sneeze is like right there. And it's like, hold it, be captive. And it's gonna come back too, right? Because you know when you have a sneeze that's like right there and you're not, and it's like just like it feels the same way with the leg cramp. Like you're like, okay, the cramp's coming, but then it doesn't come, and then you're like, oh no, but it'll be back. It's going to return. Okay, so when I'm thinking about the embodiment, I'm thinking about the listening um, of stories of brown and black, indigenous and native voices. I'm thinking about doing the work to honor grief, doing the shadow work, which is so much of what you do and engage people in, and also honoring, again, just like the various frameworks and like modalities we have with ancestral knowledge, which is also something I think you get, you draw a lot upon in your own work too. So uh, one of the things uh, for our listeners today is I told uh, Pixie, if you're not someone who has a Pixie 
book in your life, um, I, 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 I think that you're doing your whole life wrong. <laughs> you're just like, just the, the, all of it. I don't care if you're 55, 67, you're like, what? I'm like, yo, you've been doing your whole life wrong. So you need to correct that ASAP. And so, <laughs> so in the notes for this episode, Pixie, I'm going to be like, you just tell me where to tell the people. You tell the people, and then I'm going to also tell the people again where they need to be buying your books. Do you want them to buy them directly from your website? Or do you have some favorite bookshops? Uh, also, this is where I'm going to shamelessly plug that I have a bookshop and I have book lists that have plenty of Pixie books on that book list. So you can fit, visit my affiliate bookshop. But Pixie, where's your bookstore choice? Um, books can be ordered through my website, but bookshop works great. I love sending them business. I love sending folks there just to get in the rhythm of using something besides the big beast that um, delivers in two days. So yeah, let's do bookshop. Okay, awesome. So one of the things Pixie is going to do is read us, you know, some of her sacred work. Um, and I just think it's really powerful whenever we get to hear an author share their words with us directly. Thanks so much, Kina. Thanks for the prompt and for these um, encouragements to, to be embodied, to be in our body and in our sensory systems and to be feeling things. You know, such a huge part of this is that we are cut off from our feelings and cut off from our body's messages, which are so wise. I'm going to read um, Me and We, which is a little one-page chapter from Goldmining the Shadows, which I know you um, share a lot with folks. And it goes like this. The Western world is slow to value community as much as individualism. Time is calling us to develop skills for coping with individual pain. So we are better equipped to address the systemic suffering that affects communities who are living with oppression. The medicine in our wounds is to know them well. And with that wisdom, take responsibility for how our lives, everyone's lives, are turning out. When we take a higher level of personal accountability, we have the energy to fuel larger scale reparative efforts. The wounds will still be there. They just won't be getting in the way as much. While in your healing process, it is challenging to focus on others as much as yourself. It is a sacred time to devote to your wellness. The gold and unearthed is found in clearing the path back to your soul's blueprint and living from it. In order to take this work forward, you will need to believe that every soul is sacred and has a beneficial purpose. Evolution is showing us that in comparison to past generations, we are exceptionally open to new ways of being. We want more for ourselves, for the children, and for humanity from governing bodies and nations. Our cultivated desire, so our conditioned desires for more, has been provisioned by possessions, square footage, prestige, pseudo comforts, and convenience. Our egoic desire, God's bless us, for false forms of validation is shedding. Shadow work is an inside job first, but its potential is to change the, tra the trajectory for all souls everywhere. It makes you safer within, and it makes the world a safer place. Wow, Pixie, I mean, you're right. Like uh, that text, I think that one, and then prayers of honor and grief has probably been my go-to for you, you know? And just listening to you express that has made me think of even some of the experiences I've had this week. And um, like, what does it mean to hold space for multiple truths, right? That's definitely been 
something that I've articulated in a lot of spaces. And the, you know, the giant trifecta of evilness, right, um, really relies on us being binary thinkers and not knowing how to hold, it, you know, it's like, like, being like stuck in one extreme. So one extreme is me completely focused on myself and my own impression and my experiences, but the other extreme could be me completely divorced from myself, my rest, my wellness, and just focusing on the, the experience of other people. And so how can we hold both, right? And it made me think when you were reading, I just couldn't help but to think of our current carceral system, right? And it is it is it does not allow us to hold multiple tensions it does not allow us to see how there is humanity even in the person who might have i mean insert criminal activity here right um you know it does not allow like outside of the carceral system when we think about all of the people who are unhoused in a country where that logically doesn't make sense, Pixie, right? Um, it does not allow us to still hold their humanity, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, I mean, those are the things that first came to mind listening to you is the limits of our, our current imaginations mm. that we really have to get past in order to see this new world manifest. Yeah, we're absolutely going to have to hold our inner prosecutors you know, the, the ones that have protected us and helped us to survive um, living very defensively for hundreds of years here um, to understand how that vilifying, and I'm not saying allowing for harm, but understanding how when we live in the illusion of projection that this is somebody else's fault, this is somebody else's problem, that we too are capable of shirking accountability and pushing responsibility and making it someone else's issue. So, you know, we were raised during generations of punishment and blame and shame. And I think that so many of the writers and um, voices out there today are saying, we have got to hold ourselves as accountable as those that we're deeming as evil or as causing harm. You know, harm, as we look out into the world and see it, can be really um, harsh and sudden and, um, and have great impact. Or as we say, it can be death by a thousand paper cuts of wearing ourselves down with our own inner dialogues. Um, you know, how we appear on the outside is not usually what's happening on the inside. And so this level of transparency that you're often encouraging me and your listeners and readership to, um, to engage in, to be brave and open, to have those tough conversations um, is really critical. And that's why I love talking with you, Kina, is because you, your articulation of holding multiple truths at once has really healed me immediately because I realized that I can be both um, helpful and harmful at the same time. I can be loving and I can be wicked. <laughs> And so this idea of, of blasting the binary and leaving room for a much, much more nuanced conversation is what is helping us. And it is 
allowing us to engage with our own humanity, our own childhood woundings that are causing us to show up in a certain way. You know, it's often said that evil is made, not born. And so what are the conditions that we've been growing in as a nation for hundreds of years, as um, marginalized people, unhoused people, whatever the identities that folks carry, um, you know, how are we able to really feel into multiple identities as well. Um, so many of us have to really check in with our saviorism and check in with our rescuer and our sort of codependent, not wanting to pathologize there, but you know, we're really wanting to see things get better, but it's not just an outward external job. It's, it must be, we must be deeply interior. We must know ourselves so well. We must give ourselves grace. We must keep getting back up with resilience and dusting off and trying again when we make mistakes. And I think that the denial that we are mistake makers is deeply embedded in ourselves. And so this is- I mean, um, you, just, you just gave three sermons, maybe five. <laughs> I want to go back to what you said about childhood wounding and really connecting that to- some of the most important, what I see as the most important parts of the labor you do publicly, um, but you do this work in relationship too, which is why is celebrating honor and grief and why is shadow work such an important part of like responding to our childhood woundings? I mean, I think that the subtle nature of acting, behaving, creating fundamental structures in ourselves um, from those wounds, accepting this is just how I am. I'm defensive. I'm, I'm argumentative or I'm violent or I'm short fused is to be living in the shallows. Um, and so digging deeper, living with heartbreak, living with the ache of, um, of, of racism, living with the pain of looking out and seeing people not getting their needs met is to track, do some tracking and some scouting and to find out where did that originate from and how can I go in as an adult self and nurture and reparent that part. Sometimes we can be very resentful towards the parts of ourselves and really glom onto the adaptations for survival. And we're living in a very survivalism and workaholism culture. And so we, we medicate with, with all the things, um, ignoring and denying what still hurts. And until we get into that deep, rich territory of tolerating what still hurts, I just, I, um, I don't want to say I worry, but I carry the wisdom that it is going to take so much longer if we don't start diving deeper with ourselves and with each other. And so you know this because uh, without giving too much details out, you know, some of the things that I've been challenged with um, in the last few months. And I think you and I had this conversation where I told you once like Pixie, 14 year old Kina, like I see her in the peripheral and you were like, you can talk to her. Like you get what I'm saying? Like you encouraged me. Cause I was like, I don't have time to listen to her right now. You know? <laughs> I just felt like she needs to go have a seat. And I just, you were like, it's okay. She showed up, right? Like you could spend time with her um, when it makes sense. And um, it, 
and I, and I want to be really kind of, I want to lend myself to some specificity here. And I really want to be gentle. I tend to look at everything from a systems place. So anyone who has a conversation with me within five minutes, I'm going to bring, I'm probably going to bring up chattel enslavement. I've mm. come to grips with that. I'm going to bring up so many institutions that impact our lives here in the U.S. and abroad. And one of the things when you look at things systematically, uh, that also makes me think of things generationally too, right? And so the truth of the matter is every generation is peeling back um, so many of the previous harms that other, you know, like when we even think about like baby boomers and prior to the baby boomers, it was the silent generation. So we're talking about groups of people who like, to your point, survival has always been the utmost importance. Um, it is where most of our collective and individual energy has lie, laid. And so like, without sounding trite, all of us have some inner parenting to do. And that does not necessarily mean our parents were crappy. You hear what I'm saying? Because um, I do think that there's a hesitancy sometimes for people to ask themselves those deeper questions because it feels like it's throwing accusations to the people we love the most. And I don't think that's true, Pixie. I can say, I can make space for the fact that I love my dad. He's one of my favorite people, but there are things he couldn't give me because there are things like his dad couldn't give him. You yeah, know? And he's and for, still not giving himself perhaps. Yeah, right. And for me, as a, a descendant of the enslaved, I always try to bring back like the timeline of our history in the United States. Like, you know, whatever people want to say about that was so long ago. I'm like, ha ha ha. I mean, I'm the I'm the fifth generation of people who could legally read and write in this country. That's not long ago, nope. you know. And what does it mean that somewhere there's a generational tie to the violence of that system that this country still profits off of, you know? I mean, and that correlates to, I think, Native people too, right? And so I also want to make space for that. I had this amazing conversation last week with someone you and I both adore, um, Amber Sparks. Uh, and I mean, first of all, Amber is just like, Shout out to Amber. Now I have to include her in the notes for this episode so <laughs> people can learn more about her work. But what we talked about is like, Amber is this person who has this beautiful devotion to both the Black community and to the Native community. And I just love her so much. And we talked about like what the, the, the impacts of the crossover that of, of violence, the overlapping places. And once we can name the the generational trauma, it, it is when we can um, probably also op be opened up for shared and collective empathy. But that is hard to do if there's these whole chunks of our history that we're just like, oh, we're, we're, we're already past it. We don't have to grieve that. We don't have to like, lament what was lost. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, we comfort ourselves by saying, well, my parents did the best they could. And that is probably entirely true, but it doesn't mean there's not um, unreconciled pain inside of us as a result of what they weren't able to do or didn't have capacity for. And so when we're talking about Black liberation and Indigenous sovereignty, and one of the great gifts that Amber brings to the conversation is the, is the, the um, intersection of erasure within 
the Black Native community and how within that erasure, we don't know our histories, don't know our languages, aren't uplifted in either of those identities at times. Um, and so her work has been very informative um, to me as well to, to broaden again, to expand the, the tolerance for how we're operating as a nation, as individuals, as communities, and how these two things of Black liberation and Indigenous sovereignty really are walking forward into the future together. And so what does that look like? Does that look like us minimizing damages done and trying to move forward? Does it look like us being hooked so much into the past that we can't have a vision for forward movement or expand our imaginations? Um, my, my fantasy is that it means we are somewhere in the middle of that. We are acknowledging the past. We are honoring the past. We are grieving it when it swells in us. That Martine Prechtel speaks of grief as praise um, so that when we water the earth and we, and we shed our tears and we honor what is um, not just sorrow, but what is breakthrough, what is joy, what is wisdom, we are feeding the ancestors and feeding the spirits. And so can, we can do both. We can do more than both. We can grieve. And we can experience joy and delight and peace. Um, I think for many years working with individuals who are on a healing path, um, folks would say things like, I'm so afraid to open the floodgates because I'll, I'm afraid that they won't stop. And what we see in indigenous communities and what we see in black communities is that there has been a great courage to not only open those floodgates, but to titrate the information that's coming through. So yes, we go deeply into systemic um, harm that's being perpetuated. And then we go deeply into rest as we see with Nat Ministry and the work of um, Trisha there. <clears throat> and so we titrate, we tolerate as much as we can of a certain conversation and we grieve and grieve. And then we pull back a little bit and we restore. And then we come back to that conversation and we see and, and we're also, when I'm down in, you know, in a deep grief, um, you know, you're holding it down over here, having conversations, you know, other people in, in community are still moving forward, but we allow ourselves the grace of taking the breaks to restore our nervous systems and to do that sacred act of, of grieving and feeling and embodiment. And then we come back and have more wisdom and more things to say. Um, it can be overwhelming to try to integrate a depth process of grieving and, and self-accountability, accountability to ourselves, to our young parts that were hurt, that are informing the decisions that we're making, that are keeping us in denial and, and um, patterns of harm. Um, it's, it sounds like a big commitment. I do not see any other way around it. This one must be gone through. And reliance on whiteness will not help people get there because here's the thing. This is also very much community work, right? And, that's and whiteness what relies on fierce individualism, yep, rugged, yep, yep. mediocre, as Ujiomo would say, the, the mediocrity of whiteness is, is really mm -hmm. holding us back. Yeah, because it says if you can't do it by yourself, if you can't struggle through it singularly, and for my listeners, because I feel like this episode is going to be one of those where people are going to have to stop every six minutes and be like, <gasps> you know, like, like I get it. <laughs> so I totally 
totally get it. I totally get it because I feel like I'm going to listen to this in a playback and be like, <laughs> all right. But I mean, I struggle too. And I want to name that. In my hardest, most pressed moments in life, my go-to is to find a corner, isolate myself and figure it out. And be, I really be an island. Become an island. And I am so blessed and grateful that there are people who nudge me, you know, people like you and all these different people who are like, hey, like, you know, do you need some support? I'm just like, I wanted to try to figure this out myself, but maybe. <laughs> I mean, that's where whiteness has its grip on us. It says you're a failure if people know where your weak spots are. You're yep. too vulnerable if you share what is hurting you. We being fluid and in flux and, and being in a way that is, I'm in a terrible mood today and I'm suffering today. And tomorrow I'm on cloud nine, you know, being able to be with each other without branding each other as one way or another, or too much or too intense or too much in the grief process. I can't give time to that individual is protecting ourselves with, with whiteness. Um, it's not working out very well for us. No, agree. And I mean, I'm just going to put this as a little quarter note. Um, people who are listening to this, insert a little pin here. This is why people have to decolonize uh, their time as well. Because if you're insisting on linear time at all times to do the things that you have to do, it won't allow you to make space for what Pixie and I are talking about. It won't, it doesn't give you that. All right. So, and the excuse and the excuse is capitalism. Just going to throw that in there, you know? Time is money. We don't got time to deal with Pixie's feelings. She's been sad for five months, y'all. <laughs> I'm, I'm spinning it into gold over here, Kina. I promise you there'll be something that comes out of it. <laughs> I won't let you down. Change your name on my phone to Pixie Rapunzel, you know? <laughs> But it doesn't, it doesn't let space. So you have to go to the meeting and you have to be on time at the meeting and you can't come to the meeting because you're raw. You can't tell people, I just spent 10 minutes in the bathroom crying my ass out because I don't know if I can repair my family or not. I can't do that. I have to like swallow this down Back up. and show up Yep. because- We get to start Q saying no to that. Well, Q4, right? We, 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 there's a profit line, there's a margin, whatever. I mean, heaven help us when people start showing up and being a hot mess. And but now let me also say this: there are there is a population of people who can be a hot mess when they want to be. Yeah. And those are your Jeff Bezos. They oh. could be a hot mess all the damn time, and no one is gonna question it. Yeah, because they're the big bosses. They and got so the power. I think very early on in my vlogging, uh, uh formal life vlogging i did an episode of hug your white friends and we basically were like hey like uh well my friend noah actually said uh white women protect everybody like you protect white men and i was like what does that look like if everyone was afforded the same generosity and grace and elasticity yeah stop no centering one's looking that. at no one's looking at jeff bezos crazy when he walks into the meeting late <laughs> I mean, yeah. to be fair, no one looked at him crazy when he went. I have a grudge. I do. I have a grudge. I mean, I it's, ba it's bowing I to do. power. It's bowing to power. And that's that's part of that binary. And it's sick. It's it's a disease. So just in summaration, 
I think what Pixie and I are saying, you could correct me if I'm wrong, Pixie, that in order to be a person who is being progressive, whether you're white or not, but in particular, as a white person who has to figure this out, we have to embody knowledge. And so we have to learn how to do the shadow work. We have to learn how to honor grief. We have to learn how to honor those indigenous and black and native voices. We have to learn how to decenter our values. And so many of our values are hitched on the, the horse that is whiteness. Mm-hmm. Pixie, you are awesome and amazing. If people As want- are you. Are there, are there any particular avenues people can utilize to like get more Pixie in their life? I am quieter um, on social media right now, but I still I do still have a um, an Instagram page and presence. I think that your two favorites, Prayers of Honoring Grief and Gold Mining the Shadows, are where I that's where I would I would feel heartened for the world with everyone's li- if that was in everyone's libraries. Um, Everybody's library needs yeah. a pixie. It's a voice. I mean, you know, I write in the voice of a friend, not a clinical expert, and so. I am glad to, to be able to be in folks libraries because sometimes learning to, to do differently, um, is harsh or it is, um, it's too, it feels like too much. It feels overwhelming. And the feedback that I've often got about my work is that it's, it's not overwhelming. It's accessible. It's doable. Um, it makes something like grief or shadow work possible where maybe it hasn't been. So I know there's many, many more beautiful resources out there. Going to highly recommend the smell of rain on dust by Martine Prechtel. Um, and there's a YouTube of grief as praise. Those talks have really carried me through, um, a grief process in this last year that has rivaled, um, only one that I experienced 20 years ago. So find the voices that are helping you. It doesn't have to be mine. It doesn't have to be Keena Reed's, although I highly recommend hers. (laughs) Um, find the voices that are uplifting you and helping you on those days when you feel low and feel like you don't know how you're going to go forward and, and clutch them to your breast. Learn how to insert pause Mm -hmm. in a world that constantly demands that we, you know, put a dot and I say, put three dots instead. Yeah. And once you recognize those hurt, wounded places that have been, um, maybe perpetuating harm, give them new jobs. You know, having a lot of fire, having an inner prosecutor or defense attorney, having a passion for justice, like make sure that you're channeling, giving jobs rather than, you know, tearing yourself and your relationships down with them. That's so good. That's so good, Pixie. Uh, I love you, friend. This is amazing. This is awesome. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're going to, I don't know if you want to give us a final word, a final word, and I'm going to answer the check-in question. I say move into the check-in question. I don't want to cheapen or minimize anything we've talked about (laughs) by trying to put a bow on it, you know? (laughs) No bows, no bows. Okay, so what is shaping my my life today? I am recording from one of my aunt's uh, homes right now, actually. And there are pictures all around me. And one of the pictures is of my maternal grandmother, a woman who was known by the name Ruth Kimball Reed. And there's a wisdom in ancestors that we've got to figure out how to tap into. Mm-hmm. And for various reasons, I think people have avoided it for trauma, for lack of resources. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I think the thing that shakes me right now is the knowledge that I come from women who've been doing hard things 
for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And we all have the capacity to do hard things, but we almost have to reteach that to ourselves. Yeah. And we can track, we can track it. We can track our um, ancestral, you know, woundings and um, overcomings. And we're here, right? We're the evidence of um, survivors and thrivers, you know? So we can track that a little bit and um, really bring some attention to the fact that just our existence um, is full of, that we are existing means that there is hope. That's a great way to end this episode. Put a little bow bow on it. (laughs) You are amazing. I love you so much. And I just want to say, I I mean, I think this probably came, like if people listen to this in its entirety, I feel like this is just obvious, but you know, it is, um, you know, I tell people, you know, (laughs) friendship enlarges us and well, not just friendship, but our relationships, our intimate relationships can enlarge us, can help us maintain our Northern stars. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so grateful that I get to have this amazing gift in that in, with Pixie. And so, you know, try your best to strive to really have those relationships that don't just feel good, but help you be good and do good, right? Thanks for listening to the Divesting from Whiteness podcast created by my friend Kina Reed. Kina is a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant and educator. She's also the curator behind the Divesting from Whiteness podcast and platform, as well as the Anti-Blackness Reader platform. Divesting from Whiteness was created to start a dialogue that gives folks tools to divest from whiteness and white supremacy culture. You can find it across all major platforms and remember to do good works.